Uh, and if you have a ki uh, child who is younger than five, uh, they, can, they are invited to go out to the um, nursery and toddler room where they were, will also hear their own Bible story uh, this morning uh, for that age group. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you uh, for the different seasons you have as a part of our life. And that we know that you are with us through every step of the way. We know that the Christian life is not an easy paved road. It was never supposed to be. It was never promised to us that. In fact, what was promised is that we would be persecuted. We would be misunderstood. We would be maligned. We would be lonely. We would be hated even. And Lord, let us never be surprised when, when that happens towards us because of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But fill us with the power and strength of your Holy Spirit to continue to live the life and do the work you have called us to. I thank you for your word. As many people as there are running around this world today that say we can't trust your word, we're thankful that we can anchor our, our, the, our, tr our souls and the hope of our eternity into it. We know that it is true. We know that it was written by you, uh, so it is inerrant and infallible. Uh, we can trust every word of it. We can trust you. So, Lord, I pray that you would open our ears and our hearts and our eyes to see what you have for us this morning, that your spirit would go forth and work in our lives through this. In Jesus' name, amen. According to a travel website, here are the top hidden gems that no one really knows about to travel to and visit in the world. First up is the Monastery of Santa Maria dell'Isola in Tropia, Italy. One of the best kept secret getaways by Italians, that is before this travel website talked about it, it's, it's, based on, it's built on the edge of this cliff, surrounded by warm turquoise water and a picture-perfect setting for enjoying the sunset. In Rangaroa, French Polynesia, there is a natural coral reef which creates and protects a natural formed aquarium filled with an abundance of tropical fish. The way this lagoon was formed, the water is only one meter to four meters deep in the entire uh, part of this, allowing for even the most novice snorkeler to get up close and personal with many species of tropical sea life away from all of the crowds. For the more adventurous types, you can travel to, and I'm going to butcher this name, uh, Pingvala, Pingvalavatn. Lake in Iceland. You could probably pick up that it was going to be in Europe uh, with that name. This lake is technically part of the Atlantic Ocean, and as such, as you swim between the caverns on either side, you're actually swimming in between two entire continents, America on one side and Europe on the other. It's taking being two places at once to a continental level. While I wouldn't be that great of a travel agent, and I don't even know if those exist anymore, as beautiful and unique and breathtaking as these hidden gems of the world are, there is one place 
As we'll see in our passage this morning, that is even more breathtaking and even more powerful than anything this earth and God's creation has to offer. Last week, we took a, like I said, we took a bit of a break uh, from our Gospel of John series to connect with one of the stories the VBS kids had learned the week before about the prophet named Jonah, his second chance from God and God's mercy on some really evil people. This week, we're jumping back into our Gospel of John series, and guess what? I don't think, well, Doug brought his trumpet. I was going to say there should be much fanfare about this. We're actually going to wrap up chapter 6 this morning. Uh, yes, some of you might be thinking, finally. If you, <laughs> if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, a lot of Jesus' Galilean followers upon hearing all the things that Jesus was saying about him being the bread of life and that he would be giving his flesh for the world and that if anyone wanted to have eternal life, it had nothing to do with how many good things they could do and that they needed to consume his body and his blood. And they thought, this is nuts. This guy is nuts. It's cool that he can heal people, but these other things that he's talking about are just so far out there. They're just so ridiculous. More than that, they were offended by what Jesus told them. They thought that if they followed the Jewish law as best as possible, that they could earn eternal life. And Jesus had just told them that it would never be good enough. The only way one could have eternal life was to make Jesus' sacrificed body and blood one with who they were through repentance of who they were and their sin. And on top of that, no one would or even could do that unless God the Father drew them to himself and opened their spiritual eyes in order to make that surrender of themselves to them. These words were just too much for a lot of these people. And that's what brings us to verse 66. So if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to John chapter 6. We're going to be picking back up in verse 66. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John 6, 66, or you can look this up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. And we read this. Chapter 6, verse 66, by the way, it's in the New Testament. If you're having trouble finding it, just ask a neighbor or look it up in the table of contents. There's no shame in that. We read this. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. They left him. They gave up on him. They forsook him. What Jesus had revealed to them went against everything the Pharisees and other teachers had been teaching them for hundreds of years. Instead of being more intrigued and wanting to know more, they were offended and let the, that offense drive them away from the only source in reality of eternal life. Upon seeing a bunch of who had once followed him in Galilee leave, Jesus now turns to the ones he had called to full-time discipleship. Verse 60, 67. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? This is part of our scripture reading this morning. Jesus knew how easily swayed his disciples could be, his, the, the twelve. In fact, 
That's why he sent them away immediately after his miraculous feeding of the tens of thousands of people with only five loaves of bread and two fish. If you remember from when we discussed the very beginning of this chapter, and you might say, well, you want me to remember from when we first discussed the beginning of this chapter? You're, talking, you're, you're making me think of a ways back. But if you remember, Jesus could see and tell the rumblings going on in that crowd, that they were starting to put the pieces together of him being the messianic prophet and king that was foretold in the Jewish scriptures, and were right on the cusp of forcibly making him king right then and there. They obviously were only thinking about Jesus in an earthly and physical way, and wanted to make him kick out the Romans and set up the prophesied messianic kingdom of abundant peace, justice, and prosperity. And because Jesus knew it wasn't the right time, nor was this first time to earth the purpose for that, he quickly sends his 12 disciples back across the Sea of Galilee so they wouldn't get swept up in this misguided but powerful movement beginning to unfold before his very eyes. Those disciples would get swept up in another experience, if you remember, literally, by the storm and waves of that lake. But Jesus took it as an opportunity to once again prove to them his deity and power over nature and this earth by walking on the crashing waves of the water to come to them. So even the twelve escaped the misguided Movement just before this conversation between Jesus and the other Galilean disciples. Even though they had escaped that, by Jesus' grace over them, they were more than a part of witnessing a bunch of Jesus' followers get up, scoff at him, and walk away. This leaving Jesus en masse. And now it was time for Jesus to pose the same exact dilemma to them. As noted by one biblical scholar as the writer of this fourth gospel, while the apostle John gives the first movements of faith by the first five or six of these twelve, he doesn't include Jesus' official call to them to be full-time disciples of his. The other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, detail these experiences, and like we talked about at the very beginning of this Gospel of John series, well over a year ago, those were written decades before John wrote his gospel. Since so much time had passed in between the writing of Mark, Matthew, and Luke, and the writing of John, John simply assumed that most people reading his gospel already knew who these twelve were, either from reading the other three gospels or from having enough knowledge of church tradition by that point. Because John most likely wrote this gospel at the very end of the first century. So here in verse 67, John just has a reference to the twelve, to the twelve disciples, with no other connection or explanation of who they were. He just assumes that those who are reading this book know who they are. Remember, this is around the time of the turning point of Jesus' ministry. 
where his second year of ministry, known as the year of popularity, capped off by that gigantic crowd Jesus had miraculously fed with the loaves and fish, wanting to make him king, transitioning into his third year of ministry, known as the year of opposition, primarily illustrated at the beginning by this exodus of his Galilean followers. As such, this is a turning point for the 12 that Jesus specifically called to be his full-time disciples. Would they stay with him or would they follow suit? As those other followers had just given up on him, Jesus is addressing the very same dilemma to the 12. This is the turning point for them as well. Jesus knows how easily they can be swayed by whatever everyone else was doing and knows how weak their faith could be. So he point blank forces them to see things for how they really are and make a decision. This is the breaking point, Jesus says. If you were on the fence before, you can't anymore. You need to make a decision. So what's it going to be? What's it going to be? For anyone who doesn't know what else is going to happen after this, and one is reading this, there might be a holding of breath at this point. What will the decision be? What are they going to say? What are they going to do? As one biblical scholar points out, we see here that Peter is the spokesman for the rest of them. Verses 68 through 69. And we read, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now this is one of the most iconic responses by anyone to Jesus in all of Scripture. And it's even more telling because Peter apparently has confidence that this is how the rest of them feel as well, except for Judas Iscariot anyway. Firstly, how does Peter respond? He refers to Jesus as what? As Lord, right? That's how he refers to Jesus. Now, while that isn't all that earth-shattering to be hearing Peter refer to Jesus as, this is crucial for us as believers today to see this. What do I mean by this? A lot of people truly believe that they can have salvation from God from their sins and receive eternal life simply and only recognizing Jesus as their Savior. And that's it. They don't believe that they must also take Jesus as Lord or King. And they think they can do whatever they, they want to do and live however they want to live and still think they have that salvation. But taking Jesus as Lord is just as crucial to our salvation as taking him as Savior. What does Paul flat out say in Romans 10.9? If you openly declare that Jesus is what? Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This goes hand in hand with Jesus telling Nicodemus that one must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven, and Paul telling the Ephesians that eternal life is a gift from God through faith in Jesus. 
It all goes hand in hand, and all must be taken for yourself. Peter starts his statement with Lord, and then asks a very honest and very powerful question in response. To whom shall we go? Peter and the rest of the twelve have recognized that there's no one and nothing else in the world worth living there, worth living for. In their context, all of these guys gave up their full-time jobs to follow Jesus full-time. In the case of a lot of them, they even gave up spending time with their families to follow Jesus full-time. In actuality, all of these guys gave up everything they had in their lives in order to become disciples of Jesus. So when Peter asks, to whom shall we go? He's pointing out that they've given everything up in their lives to follow Jesus. And as such, what else did they have? When we make the decision to surrender our souls to God, taking Jesus as both the Savior from our sin and the King over the rest of our lives, we must also give up any allegiance we once had to the world and the world's beliefs, messages, and things they hold dear. We no longer have the justification to just go along with what the world thinks about any given topic or what we think about any given topic. Instead, we must turn to God's word to see what he thinks about any given topic. There is no other final authority other than what God's word says about any given topic after that point in our lives when we surrender our lives to Jesus. Whether it's morality or sexuality or LGBTQIA plus topics or gender identity or whose right it is to end an unborn life or what's loving and what's not loving or what we should be spending our time doing or what we should use our finances on or our priorities. And guess what? I'm going to let you in on a little secret. If you actually try to accurately understand what God's word says about everything, all the topics that I just mentioned along with everything else, and not just try to interpret it based on your own personal experiences or wokeness or anything other than the inerrant and infallible very word of God, what you're going to find is that what it says, teaches, and commands is going to be the complete opposite of what the world promotes. We see that. We see that clearer and clearer with each passing day. We shouldn't be at all surprised by that. And we shouldn't at all be surprised if people come at us for standing up for the truth and love. This is why the Apostle James says, you adulterers, don't you realize your friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again, the Apostle James says. He wants to make this very clear. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy, enemy of God. Now, who here wants to do that? Who here wants to make themselves an enemy of the creator of the universe? That's the quickest way to do it. Romans 12, 2 tells us instead, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. Don't do it. 
Instead, let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. And Jesus himself tells us, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. Don't be surprised by that. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it. But you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world. So the very fitting result is it now hates you. Don't be at all surprised by that. This very same Peter who is recorded in our passage this morning, will go on to say in his first recorded biblical letter, Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners of this world to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. That's all God's word. If we recognize Jesus as the Savior from our sin and Lord over our lives, that automatically, you don't have a choice in the matter, that automatically makes us strangers in this world, called out of the world and flat out hated by the world. Therefore, all any of us can see when we look at our own lives is this, to whom shall we go? What else do we have? Jesus is it. Well, he is all we have. But he is all that we need. While all else would forsake us for living for the truth of Christ, we have Jesus. And that's all that matters. Why is that all that matters in this world? precisely because of what Peter follows up that question with. He says in verse 68, you have words of eternal life. Nothing else in this world, no matter how attractive it sounds, or innocuous it sounds, or peace-filled it sounds, or loving it sounds, ultimately makes any sort of difference for our souls. And really, any message or opinion that does not squarely rest on the absolute truth of God's word is complete nonsense. You can see that more and more with each day. The only message and words that hold any meaning, any power, and are the only difference between whether we go to heaven or hell when we die are Jesus' words and the message of, message of salvation in connection with Jesus and Jesus alone found in God's word. That's it. It doesn't matter how good you think you are. It doesn't matter how, uh, how loving you think you are. It doesn't matter how agnostic or on the fence you are. The truth of God's plan of salvation is crystal clear and astoundingly simple. You either accept that you're a sinner, that Jesus died for your sin in your place and rose again to prove he's God and to be your king and you're restored to God and you are given eternal life in heaven as a gift by his grace. That's one option. The only other option is that you reject any of it 
And you get what we all deserve for our sin, which is ending up in hell for eternity. There are no complicated additions to it, nor is there a gray area. That's it. Those are our two choices. Jesus flat out said to Nicodemus, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God, no matter how good they think they are, without being born of water and the Spirit. In the context of this conversation, Jesus speaks of being born again, the source of which is twofold. The water Jesus speaks of is the water of repentance from sin. And the Spirit is the Holy Spirit that we receive when we accept Jesus as both our Savior and King. That's the only way we can be given eternal life. And it's clear in verse 68 that Peter knows that these words of Jesus are the only way he and the other 12 and anybody else could have the hope of salvation and eternal life. Peter goes on to elaborate a little bit more. Again, he says in verse 69 again, We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. There's a clear interchangeable relationship between the two words of believe and know. It's not just, oh, I think I believe that this is true. And it's not even, I believe that that's your truth. In a world where it's perfectly fine and logical to hold the cognitive dissonance of you believe what is your truth and all believe what is my truth, God's word is crystal clear that there is only one truth, God's truth, and therefore the truth. And who is the truth? Jesus told him, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one, as good intentioned as they are, no one can come to the Father except through me. There is no your truth, my truth. That is a mirage. I'm going to be honest with you. That is a mirage and a lie perpetuated by none other than Satan. Here's why. If there is no foundation of absolute truth, then nothing is true. It is up to whatever any individual believes is true, affecting thoroughly that individual's system of morality. Not only can that logic be picked apart and destroyed quite easily, for instance, if my truth was that there are too many people in this world and it's my personal, personal mission to off as many people as I can. If that's my personal truth and my personal morality, who are you then to tell me I'm wrong if that's my truth? And yet anyone with half a brain would disagree with me on that. Do you see the blatant illogicalness to that belief system of you have your truth, I'll have my truth? Oppositely, Jesus himself says that he's the truth. Therefore, true belief is knowing he's the truth. Everything he has said is the truth. And everything he did is the truth. Faith is the full 100% confidence that Jesus as God died and rose again to save us from our sins and become our king. That because of God leading us to have that faith, he has already saved us. That God reveals to us that everything in his word is absolute truth. 
even and especially today, and that Jesus is coming back for us someday. The author of Hebrews puts it this way. Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. Do you see those words? Reality and evidence. That is the truth. What does Peter say is what they believe and know? That Jesus is the Holy One of God. As noted by one biblical scholar, this is the only time this phrase is used of Jesus in all of Scripture. Except for one other event, which I think unlocks what Peter is actually getting at here. In the Gospels of Mark and Luke, a person uses this, a being, uses this same term to describe Jesus. But it's not a human being who says it. When a demon-filled man approaches Jesus in the synagogue at Capernaum, the very same synagogue that these Galilean disciples that we've referenced today left Jesus in, we read this. He says, Go away! Why are you interfering with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The only other time this term is used of Jesus in all of Scripture. I love that Jesus responds with basically the equivalent of shut up, knock it off, and come out of this guy, which happens. The connection is undeniable. Who would have been there at this event? If we look at all four Gospels together and line up the events that they record, Jesus' initial calls to faith in him back in John 1 included John, Andrew, Philip, Nathaniel, and Peter. In fact, in both Mark and Luke's accounts, after this demon left that guy, Jesus goes with Peter to Peter's mother-in-law's house and heals her. So who was most likely also there on that day in the Capernaum synagogue watching all of this happening? At the very least, Peter and probably the other disciples who initially put their faith in Jesus in John 1 as well. That event obviously made a huge impact on Peter. According to Mark and Luke, it was the first time anyone had witnessed Jesus having authority over even the spiritual and unseen realm. He wasn't just the Messiah or the Anointed One. He wasn't just the Eternal King over the world. He wasn't just the sacrificial lamb who would take away the sin of the world. The only one who had that kingship of authority to command demons to shut up and do his bidding, to only allow Satan to do anything according to his sovereignty, and to ultimately crush the power of Satan, was none other than God himself. Even though the demon at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry was trying to thwart God's timing and plan for revealing who Jesus really was as God, by the time we get to John 6, 69, in our passage this morning, we have Jesus' disciples at the right time openly declaring that very same truth. Jesus is God. And since Jesus is God, he transcends human experience and yet impacts it. 
Since Jesus is God, he has authority even over the highest levels of the demonic realm. And since Jesus is God, he has already destroyed the power of the entire kingdom of darkness through his death and resurrection. This spiritual realm understanding of what Peter was declaring goes hand in hand with what Jesus ends this chapter with, verses 70 through 71. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. As pointed out by one biblical scholar, there is actually not the little word a or a in the Greek before the word for devil. You see that we have that in our English translations, but there's actually no uh, word for that before the word for devil. So the way this is written is, is meant to describe that Judas Iscariot would have been working under the influence of Satan himself, and therefore, in purpose, he was the devil in his actions. Jesus chose every single one of the twelve, but one would reject Jesus' grace and betray him by listening to the words of the Prince of Darkness. When the world around us gets loud, what are we going to do? When a traumatic experience happens in our lives, what are we going to do? Are we going to give up what we know and believe to be true? Are we going to put one foot in the Bible and one foot in worldly wisdom or so-called peace? Are we going to either reject the Bible or start manipulating it to fit your worldview and apply inaccurate and irresponsible interpretation methods to make it say something it never intended? As Jesus asked the twelve, the same question must be posed to us, especially as the world around us and its messages just get louder and louder. Are you going to also leave following Jesus and his truth too? Or, as Peter states, are you going to remain rooted in the confirmation to whom would we go? Where else could we go? Who else would we follow? May we continue to accept the truth the way it is, as plainly and accurately as it's written in the word of God. May we continue to cling to Jesus as our only hope. May we continue to make him the king of our lives. Quite frankly, and absolutely in reality, Jesus is our only hope. Jesus is our only truth. Jesus is our only way to eternal life. He's all we have. And as he's the embodiment of the word of God, which is the only source of truth and authority for godly living, we have. In connection with our opening illustration, the hidden gem of a place, the most breathtaking and fulfilling is really a person. Jesus, the Holy One of God. The world twists and complicates and moves the goalposts on even what truth is. And as the world gets louder and louder, may we cling to Jesus and his truth 
harder and harder. Let us focus on Jesus and finish this race of faith well. We know Jesus died and rose again to save us from our sin, give us eternal life, and make himself the authority over the rest of our lives. We know that God always has his perfect plan, truth, and standards. No matter how much the, how, and how strongly this world rails and fights against it. We know that Jesus is king. That Jesus will return for us one day. And he will set up his perfect kingdom of justice, peace, and abundance on earth. And we know that if we die before he comes back, we will immediately be ushered into his presence to be kept safe for all of eternity. We are strangers in this world. We're going to be hated for standing up for God's truth in love. Let it be. We have been saved to be citizens of heaven. This world is passing away. Let us seek to win the world for Jesus and not be disheartened by it. And may we finish this race of faith well, as so many have done before us. As the author of Hebrews writes, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses who have gone on before us to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture as we wrap up John chapter 6 this morning and we see these two movements happening. We see the movement of people forsaking the truth, walking away from the truth, not wanting to have anything to do with the truth. And then we have those who stick even more fiercely to it. Lord, may we be part of that group. As loud as the, message, as, as the messages of this world get, may we cling to you and to your truth even harder. We know that you are the way, the truth, and the life. To whom else would we go? Where else would we go? Fill us with the courage and strength we need to live the life you have called us to as we go out into this loud and dark world. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me as we close out our time this morning. By the way, as I turn uh, to my music here for our closing song, if this is your first time worshiping with us today, we're so glad you're here. Thanks for being here.